English Standard Version. Any version's great. It's going to be on the screen. It's like my go-to lines every single week. Um, but before we get started this week, I want to draw your attention really briefly to this congregational letter that we gave you. We try to do this every other month, give you a little update on some of the things that are happening behind the scenes here. Uh, some of the things that are coming down the pike. On the back of that, we've got an update where we're at year-to-date financially. Um, and also this week, a couple things that we as a church want to be lifting up in prayer. Um, so be, please be praying for those things. Um, one thing I want to draw your attention to on the congregational letter this week is this one-to-one discipleship training class that we're going to be doing this summer. I really believe in this. Because when I look at my own life, when I think about my own life, my own walk, how I grew, there was two or three or four men through the years who walked one-on-one with me, who showed me what it looks like to follow Christ, who were continually open to me spending time with them, asking them questions, going to them for leadership, for guidance, for prayer. One-to-one discipleship is a powerful thing. But the other thing is that one-to-one discipleship is incredibly intimidating. If you've never discipled somebody and if you don't know what it looks like to disciple them, it's such an unclear, such an amorphous word to be discipled, to do discipleship in that way. And so if you want to learn what that looks like, if you feel like God's calling you to use you in that way, or if you even just want to be open to the reality that God can use you in that way, I really encourage you to sign up on the info table over here for this one-to-one discipleship class. Learn this skill so that God can use you when there's somebody in your life that he calls you to disciple. That's really the heart here. It's not my job and the elder's job to do ministry alone. It's all of our job to do ministry to one another. It's just a fancy word for pointing one another to Christ. So sign up for that. I really hope, I really hope you guys are able to come. Uh, the other thing is over on this table where the giving box is, we've got a couple cards like this, and we have a golden basket over there. If you have a chance today, write a note on one of these cards for Matt Locke. Um, he's still in the hospital. He's, he's doing well. He's, he's, he's kicking and really fighting. Uh, but we want to encourage him. Give him a verse. Give him a note. Uh, give him some encouragement. Remind him to look to Jesus. He's doing it. He's looking to Jesus. He's modeling that for all of us. But uh, he needs the encouragement of the body of Christ. So do that if you have a chance. So now we're going to get into the book of Psalms once again. Two weeks ago we were in Psalm chapter 1. That was the foundation, really, for all the Psalms. It says that the word of God is the source of life. And so like a tree planted by streams of water, plant yourself in the word of God. Draw constantly from the word as the source of life. Drink deeply from the Word of God. Now we're moving on into the Psalms, and we're going to drink from the Word of God together. We're in Psalm 16 last week, and that was a psalm of trust. We learned about how David took refuge under the wings of God. And now this week we're going to be in Psalm chapter 50. Psalm chapter 50 is a psalm that's called a covenant renewal. That's the type of psalm that it is, a covenant renewal. A covenant is basically the relationship between two parties who have agreed to uh, a, a, set of, a set of expectations. We have a covenant in our marriage, and God had a covenant with the nation of Israel. Now, the, the covenant that God had with Israel in the Old Testament can really be boiled down to this, in a nutshell, that he, the holy God, will dwell amongst the people of Israel and be their God if 
The nation of Israel lives as a holy nation, follows the laws of God. These are the stipulations to be in this covenant relationship with one another. There are stipulations to this covenant. And so when we look at Psalm 50, this psalm is a covenant renewal. It's a covenant calling back, we might say. Where the author of the psalm is saying to the people of Israel, you have committed to live this way, so come back. Be faithful to that covenant. Walk in the way you committed to live. The way that he laid out in the law. And so for us today, when we come to this psalm of covenant renewal, we have to understand, we have a covenant with God as well. If we've put our trust in Jesus Christ, if we've been made new by the sacrificial death on the cross, by faith in that, we are in a covenant relationship with God. And so for us, when we hear the psalm that's calling people back to live faithfully to the covenant, for us, it can be a call to return to the covenant that we made with God as well, to walk rightly in his way. And so that's what we're going to see in this passage today. So let me read Psalm chapter 50, and then I'll pray. Psalm 50, verse 1. The Mighty One, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silent. Before Him is a devouring fire. Around Him, a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge, Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you, Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your fold. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. You shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother and slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was like one of you, like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charges before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, in Psalm chapter 50, we will see what it looks like to walk rightly before you. And Father, that is the desire of our hearts. We want to walk rightly before you for a reason. We want to walk rightly before you because we know that in so doing, we bring glory to you. We live as lights in the darkness, Lord. Our existence, everything we are, what you saved us for, what you created us for, what you made the planet and the universe for, is so that we would be able to declare the greatness of who you are, that we would be able to point others to who you are, that we would be able to delight in the goodness of who you are, Lord. So we pray that as we get into Psalm 50, that would be the result, that we would leave today more committed and more able to live a life that glorifies you, that puts you in the place that you deserve, that makes you glorious in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of the nations. Lord, speak to us this morning through this song. We delight in you and we praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, we're going to start where we start every week. Verse 1. Look with me there. The Mighty One, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him, a mighty tempest. So the psalmist, the writer of the psalm, starts big. You can't get much bigger than these verses. He starts by painting a picture of just how big our God is. How massive, how glorious, how transcendent, how all-encompassing our God is. He is the God of the universe. That's where he starts. And he starts there for a reason. He starts there because before he says anything else, before he does anything else, he wants Israel to remember who their God is. He wants Israel to remember who this God is that they're making a covenant with. He calls them back to remembering the identity of their God. That's the foundation. That's the foundation of verses 1, 2, 3. Now he's going to continue. Verse 4. He, God, calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. He calls out to the heavens and earth, in other words, and everything in between, all of creation. And he says, gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Come to me, covenant people. Come to me, O Israel. Verse 6, the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge Selah. When a psalm writer puts in this word, selah, that's a liturgical term. That means it's a worship term. It's a term that the writer of these poems uses to tell the readers or the singers of these psalms to to pause. The song in itself means rest. It's almost a way of saying we've come to the end of a verse, so what we've just read is almost like a verse of the song. It's a unified thought unit. So we see selah and it causes us to think, okay, well, what did we just see in that section? Why did they pause here? Why should we say la? Why should we rest? Why should we pause at this point in the psalm? I think the reason is because the writer of the psalm is trying to block off these first six verses to lay as a firm, solid foundation for the rest of the passage. In these first six verses, what we're seeing is God is awesome. That's basically it. That's what they're trying to communicate. 
God is ruling over all, verse 1. He is radiant in glory, verse 2. He is coming in power, verse 3. He is calling to the world, verse 4. He is calling to his covenant ones, verse 5. And he's gathering us all for a reason, verse 6. So in other words, in verses 1 through 6, the psalmist is painting a picture. He's painting a picture of a cosmic courtroom. And in this cosmic courtroom, the courtroom is the entire world. God is the judge, and Israel's on the hot seat. God is the judge, and Israel is on trial. God is about to testify against Israel. But what's the charge? What's the charge that God is bringing against Israel? That's what we're going to see in the rest of this passage. Because God's actually bringing two charges against the nation of Israel. The first charge we're going to see in verses 7 through 15. And the second charge in verses 16 to 23. So I'll read verse 7 and on. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. And this is it. Not through your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your fold. In the book of Exodus and Leviticus, God lays out a system of sacrificing animals to God. This is the way God called his people to worship him, by sacrificing these animals to him. And God is saying to them, look, you're doing fine with these sacrifices. You're doing what I asked you to in the books of Exodus and Leviticus. You are obeying the commands, and that's good. You haven't failed in in offering these sacrifices. But even so, I'm not going to accept them from you. And that should cause us to pause. Why not? If they're doing the sacrifices, why, why wouldn't God accept these sacrifices? He says in verse 9, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your fold. We have to read on a little bit. Verse 10 through 13. For every beast from the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills. And all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. That's a great verse. (laughs) For the world and its fullness are mine. He already has everything. Then he says, do I eat the flesh of of bulls or drink the blood of goats? The implied answer is no. The reason I asked you, he's saying, to sacrifice isn't because I need animals to eat. It's not because I couldn't get animals on my own. I already own all the animals. It's not that I just tangibly need these food, this food as if I'm hungry. What he's saying, what he says in 13 is, I do not eat the flesh of bloods or drink the blood of goats. He's saying, that's ridiculous. I own everything. I don't need any, anything. I am all sufficient. But there's something more important to me than just the animals in themselves. What is that? What does God really want? What does God really want in order for him to receive the sacrifices from the nation of Israel? Look with me, verse 14 and 15. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. So what does God really want? What does he really want from the nation 
of Israel. He wants a, a sacrifice of thanksgiving. He wants a posture of the heart in their sacrifices. I mean, think about it. In asking for animals, God is not hungry. What he wants is Israel's self-giving praise. He wants them to offer these sacrifices, yes, but only as a means to offer their devotion, as a means to instruct them, or sorry, to interact with them, in order to worship him, in order that they might live in obedience to him. Their offerings are not a duty to perform coldly. Their offerings are a holy, solemn act of praise. So to put it clearly, God is saying to them this, I don't want your rituals for ritual's sake. I don't want you just to check boxes because I asked you to check boxes. I don't want you to, to give me heartless praise. I want you to do these things that I called you to do, but I want you to do them in order to help carry out a, a heart of praise. See, I want, I want them so that you can worship me with your heart in the process. That's, that's the point. And this truth, this thing that God is calling Israel to, is something that he calls us to as well. It seems very foreign and very amorphous when we think about sacrifices, because that is so not what God is asking of us. At least not in the way that we're reading in this passage. Not with bulls and, and with goats. But the principle is still the exact same for us today. We might say that God doesn't want us to robotically go to church. God doesn't want us to robotically pray, robotically read the word. He still wants us to do it. That's the thing. He's not saying stop doing it. He's just saying when you do it, use your heart. The point isn't just to check the boxes. The point is to delight in God in the process. This isn't an excuse to stop offering sacrifices. This is still the way he wanted to interact with Israel at this point in history. But do it so that you might delight in your God. Do it so that you might know him better and love him more in the process. Come to church for the sake of delighting in and worshiping with the body of Christ. Read the word in order to delight in his truth. Pray in order to commune with your father. Still do these spiritual disciplines. Fast. Serve. Because God is not glorified when we simply check the boxes. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. Ritual in itself is not heartless. Maybe that's a good way to summarize it. Ritual in itself is heartless. However, when we lose sight of why we do the rituals, the, the, the routines, the rhythms, then they become heartless. And then they become worthless. But the point then is not to throw them away, but to reinvigorate them with hearts of praise. To return to the purpose of why you did these things in the first place. And so that's what we see in verses 7 through 15. But now as we go back to the, the courtroom, we see a second charge. God testifies against Israel for a second time. The first charge, you are offering heartless sacrifice, so he calls them, reignite your heart with worship. And now in verses 16 through 23, we see a second charge. I'll read it. 16 through 20. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. 
If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and keep company with adulterers. You give my mouth, you give your mouth free reign for evil. Your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. So back in the courtroom of God, the first charge, you can't worship me from a place of cold ritualism, but he calls them back to a heartfelt praise. And now in the second charge, what he's saying is, you can't worship me from a place of unrepentant sin. You can't openly, and or not openly, that's the wrong word, but you can't willingly embrace your sin and embrace the God of the universe. Verse 16, that's what he's getting at. The wicked ones have no right to worship the righteous one. What right have you, he's saying, to claim to be my people if you don't live in my ways? Verse 16. But then in verses 17 through 20, God names a couple sins. He names a couple things that he sees the Israelites doing in their day-to-day life, and he puts his finger on them. He says, this is the type of stuff that prevents you from being able to worship me properly. And this is what he says, verse 17 through 20. Verse 17, for you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. In other words, you ignore my work, you, you ignore my words and you ignore my work. You ignore my words and you ignore my works. Verse 18, if you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. In other words, you ignore the sins of the brothers and sisters around you. You ignore the sins of Israelites and you don't, you don't bother to call your brothers and sisters back to holy lives. 19 and 20. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's tongue, uh, your, other, your mother's son. You sin with deceit. And the thing that jumped out to me when I see these three sins named by the writer of this psalm, is the things that prevent the people of Israel from properly worshiping their God are not murder, rape, and adultery. They're ignoring God's word. They're ignoring the sins of the people around them. They're speaking sinfully. That's convicting. Isn't that convicting? Because when I think about it, who's, who's, who's innocent in those things? Who hasn't fallen short in those ways? But the point being, in order to worship the God of the universe, God is calling the nation of Israel back to a faithful way of living for him, hating their sin. For Israel, God says that you cannot continue in unrepentant sin and then also continue to worship rightfully your righteous God. He's calling them to seek to live holy lives. You cannot ignore the law and claim to be my people, he says. And we know for us, on this side of the cross, we have a God who has changed the way in which he works amongst his people. But that doesn't change this command completely. When we read these passages, for us too, we have to recognize that we cannot continue in unrepentant sin and worship our God righteously and uh, properly in the process. That we need to seek to live holy lives as well. That we can't ignore his laws and claim to be his people. Because the bad news, the worst news in the history of the universe, is that even the smallest sins, even the most socially acceptable sins, 
even the sins that happen in our heart and don't even come out of our mouth, are enough to separate us from God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is foundational to what we believe. All of us have no right to worship our God. But that news, the worst news in the history of the universe, comes along with the best news in the history of the universe. That even though we can't live in a way that allows us to have relationship with God, Jesus Christ, his son, came into the world to live the life that we could and to die the death in our place, that if we believe in him, if we trust in his sacrificial death on the cross, we are able, we are worthy to approach the throne of God in praise. That's the truth of the gospel. And while in this life, we have the Holy Spirit in us, dwelling in us, giving us the power to live lives that are glorifying to God, lives in which we can seek out and weed out the sin in our lives. And we might not do it perfectly, but the sign of a true, genuine heart change, the sign of a true indwelling of the Holy Spirit is that we, the people of God, would long to live this way for him. Holy lives won't feel like you're just checking boxes. Living holy lives will be a delight. We're still tempted, but we fight. We fight for holiness. And this is true for us, just as much as it was for the Israelites as well. So in verse 21, God begins to bring everything together. He takes all this passage and begins to move toward a verdict in the courtroom analogy. That's what he says in verse 21 and 22. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this. That word means feel this. Do not miss this. That's what he's getting at. Then you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. What the writer is trying to say in this passage is this. You are guilty. God is saying, I have warned you. Do not ignore my warning, but mark it, because if you don't, judgment will come. And then he pulls it together. Verse 23. And this is the most important passage in the entire psalm. This is what he says. The one who offers thanksgiving as a sacrifice glorifies me. The one who orders his way rightly I will show the salvation of God. What does God want from Israel? What does God want from us? What he wants is a thankful heart and a holy life. A thankful heart and a holy life. And he's saying to Israel, return. Return to heartfelt worship. Return to holy living. Return to covenant faithfulness. Return to living with a thankful heart and a holy life. God's love for his chosen people leads him to call them back to this faithfulness. And it's his love that he has for us that leads him to call us to live in this way of faithfulness as well. With a thankful heart and a holy life. Because we are in covenant relationship with God as well. It's a different covenant than Uh, that people of Israel had in the Old Testament. It's the new covenant. It's the covenant mediated by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that means that our covenant, our, our relationship with God functions differently, but it's still a relationship in which we seek to live for his glory and he gives us the benefits of salvation and of life. 
And so what does God ask of us? That we worship God with a thankful heart and a holy life. That that we worship God with a thankful heart, meaning that we don't just check boxes for boxes' sake, but that we worship him from the heart, with our affections, with our delights. That we not cease from doing these spiritual disciplines, but we do them not out of obligation, but out of desire, from the heart. That we worship God from our heart. That we delight in worshiping with the church and reading his word, spending time in prayer, fasting and serving the world. And also that we worship God with a holy life. That we not get caught up in sinful patterns. That we don't get drawn away by temptation in the world around us. But that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we hate our sin. Seek out the sin in our life and weed out the sin in our life for his glory and for his praise. That we worship God with a thankful heart and a holy life. Now we're going to worship God together in a very particular way. Communion in itself is a ritual. Communion in itself is a ritual that Jesus gave us. He called us to worship him in this way. But I know that for many of us, I know that this is true for many of us because I, I've experienced this in my own life as well. Communion can become a ritual with the heart removed. We can forget how beautiful and how holy and how heartfelt church act truly is. When we come to the table and we, we take the elements, uh, it's not just something we do because Jesus told us to. It's something that we do because in so doing, we as the family of God commune with one another as we as the family of God commune with God. It's it's communion. (laughs) This is sharing a meal with the body of Christ. As we take part in these elements together, this this is a time of worship. So let's try today to remember and celebrate the gospel, to worship in the process, to inject our hearts back into this ritual. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, it doesn't matter if you come to our church, if you go to another church, if you're a part of this denomination, another denomination, whoever you are, you're welcome to come share this meal with us. This is something that the body of Christ does as a family. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've never put your trust in him, if you've never received salvation, received regeneration, received new life, then we ask that you not join us at this table today. However, we ask that you consider, is Christ calling you to follow him? He longs for you to trust. He longs for you to seek him and find life in his name by his sacrifice on the cross. Also, if you have kids who are young, we trust that you know the spiritual state of your kids better than we do. Uh, So we trust that you will lead them in communion at the time that they're ready to do so. So I'm going to pray. The band's going to come up here and play. And then I will lead you in the communion later here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have, you saved us. It's by your death on the cross that we even have the right to call you God and Father at all. You've washed us clean, Lord. You've brought us into covenant relationship with yourself. A relationship 
in which the stipulations are basically that you will be our God and all we have to do is trust and to die, to take up the cross. All we have to do is lay down our lives before you and you will give us eternal life, Lord. That's what you call us to. And so I pray, Father, that as we come together to do communion, that our hearts would be focused on the amazing gift of your Son. That's what we're remembering. That's what we celebrate. And I pray that today it wouldn't just be a cold ritual, but rather communion would be praise. It would be worship. And I pray, Lord, for anybody who doesn't know you, who hasn't accepted eternal life in your name by faith in the death of your son, that this morning would be the first time that they come to know you in truth, that you make them new, that you cause them to be born again to new life. And we praise you, thinking that this sacred meal, communion, would be the first act that they do as a member of this body. Father, we know that you're the one who does all of this. You're the one who saves. You're the one that changes hearts, minds, and life. So, Lord, change us today. Whether we don't believe or we do, change those of us who don't believe in you to be alive again by faith. And those of us who do believe in you to renew our hearts as we worship you with heartfelt praise and a holy life. Father, we praise you. We give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen.